Well, good morning, guys. If you have your Bibles open to Judges chapter 4, we're going to be in the book of Judges this morning, looking at Judges 4 and Judges 5. Uh, As you're turning there, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Trey Corey. I'm the executive pastor here at Grace Bible, and it is a joy to get to fill in for Jacob this morning, who's over at our Anderson campus for this this morning. Uh, But we're going to be in Judges 4. As you're turning there, I will just tell you, it was about this time some years ago in college that a prank war with an apartment of girls above us took an unprecedented and escalated set of events and turns. And see, uh, it was a fall semester that we were in this prank war with these girls above us uh, at an apartment complex about Holloman and Wellborn. And as we were kind of going through that semester, it was a lot of fun and innocent pranks, nothing that was too crazy, but it began to escalate to a place that people's feelings began to get hurt. Started off eventually with just simply hiding things, barricading doors, misplacing items, uh, stealing keys, whatnot, just the normal run-of-the-mill things, until the girls did a few things that... Um, we felt very uncomfortable with. And so we decided at that point in time that we would respond one more time in such a way that it would end the prank ward for all time. So we decided to play nice and play Boston through the fall semester as the rest of the fall semester came to an end and before we decided to act swiftly and conveniently. Uh, these girls decided to leave for the winter break as all do. And so as they left, we decided we were going to leave after they left. We gained access into their apartment through reasons and privileges that we won't talk about today for the statute of limitations on legality could, be, uh, could still be within that window, I don't know. But we gained access into their apartment and we proceeded to do a series of pranks that, that fall afternoon uh, day in December. We bought a bunch of yarn and we proceeded to tie yarn from one object to another in their bedroom to such an extent and such a density that you had to be a world-class gymnast to kind of get through the bedroom. We proceeded to dump a year's worth of lint that we had been saving for I don't know what reason into their bathtub. We proceeded to shoe polish all of their windows of their apartment so that you could not see out. And then the death knell of the prank, the closing wallop, we proceeded to buy 300 Dixie cups, which we lined through their kitchen to their front entrance, stacked them all side by side, proceeded to pour milk, turn the heater up, close the door, and leave. It was diabolical, it was evil, it was pure genius, okay? (laughs) That uh, one of the girls would return early um, that January, about this time some years ago, because her boyfriend wanted to have a conversation. Anytime a boyfriend or girlfriend wants to have a conversation, it's not good. And so he would break up with her that day. And so she would return all by herself, heartbroken, to her apartment that she was thinking was going to be a safe refuge to find what we had prepared for her in all of our glory, all right? She had to, one by one, empty out about 200 Dixie cups of spoiled milk. The smell was intoxicating. She had to cut through the yarn. She had to wipe off the shoe polish of the windows so she could, she could see out again. And then she had to remove the lint and kind of clean it all up all by herself before she found one last prank that we had in hiding and in waiting for her. She jumped in the shower because she wanted to wash away the tears, the sweat, and the filth. And when she found, when she turned the overhead uh, shower head on, we had packed Kool-Aid into the shower head. And so Kool-Aid just hits her right at her weakest moment. Um, we actually, surprisingly, are still friends with some of them and actually still get Christmas cards from a couple of them as a family, which is to God's grace, okay? Why do I share that story? Well, twofold reasons. One is don't prank me. It won't go well, okay? <laughs> Number two... Uh, there are some people in the midst of crisis and conflict that respond with great bravery, and there are some that respond with great passivity. On that day, those girls learn we respond together with great bravery, all right? 
And they didn't dare question us or threaten us ever again to that day. All right. What we're going to do this morning as we jump into Judges 4 and in Judges 5 is we're going to see a group of people who are going to be in the midst of a crisis, in the midst of a critical moment, and some are going to respond with great bravery, and some will respond with great passivity and great hesitancy. Those decisions can leave legacies that can last decades, and what I want to see from Judges chapter 4 and what I want us to see from Judges 5 is what happens for those that respond with great bravery and what happens with those that respond with great passivity. Spoiler alert, as we kind of jump into the story, some of you may know Judges 4, some of you may know Judges 5, you may know the story of Deborah and where we're headed, but if you're a lady this morning, this is going to be a great morning, you're going to feel great. Because your kinfolk, your lady folk are going to thrive and look phenomenal today. For us dudes, this is not going to be our best day, all right? The leading men in our story are not going to be the role models that we hope that we men can be, all right? This is a bad day. This feels like some of the most recent Marvel movies where I don't know for whatever reason, but the women are leading in brave warrior victories, and the men are either decapacitated, injured, or have just bailed out. I don't know what it is, but all the dudes are just in the sideline or in the back. This feels a little bit like that as we jump into Judges chapter 4 and Judges 5. That's where we're headed this morning. Passivity and bravery in the midst of crisis. That's where we're headed. As you jump into Judges 4, we're going to see that the book of Judges, there's a series of cycles, and we find ourselves right in the middle of one of those cycles as Judges 4 opens. If you have your Bible, you can look there, Judges 4. If you want to look up on the screen, you can do that as well. Judges 4, verses 1 to 3 kind of set the context and tell us where we are in the midst of the ongoing cycles of the book of Judges. Judges 4, verses 1 to 3 tell us this. The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 chariots, iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Throughout the book of Judges, we get one cycle after another after another, and it always goes like this. The people of God, the nation of Israel, respond in obedience. They will walk with God, and God will bless them. In the midst of those blessings, eventually they will forget God and they will turn away from God. As they turn away from God, as they begin to forget God, choose to no longer obey God, then God brings judgment upon them and oppression at the hands of the foreign enemies that are around them. They'll be kicked off the land, they'll be thrown around, they'll suffer mightily until they call back out to God. God then responds as they cry out asking for help. They then repent. They then return back to the law and back to worshiping God. And as they return, then God provides them peace and wholeness and well-being on the land that he had promised to them. And on and on and on we go, cycle after cycle. In the midst of Judges 4, what we find is that they are in the midst of one of those cycles where Ehud had died. And in the midst of that leadership that is voided and exited, they forget God. They walk away from God. And they have been suffering now for 20 years. In the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that oppression, the nation of Israel cries out and they call out to God yet again. Because of that, in Judges 4, we're going to be introduced in verse 4 to a woman named Deborah. She's going to be be, uh, risen up as the next judge for the nation of Israel. In the midst of that judgment, we're going to see that she's going to have a great clarity of calling and clarity of conviction uh, conviction as to what God had for her and for the nation of Israel. In the midst of that clarity, I want you to see not just what the calling was, but I want you to see how verse 4 describes her. Uh, Verse 4 says this, speaking of who she is. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah, and the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. In the midst of the nation of Israel crying out, asking God for deliverance and help, God raises up a woman named Deborah. 
text says that she's a prophetess. Her name, Deborah, simply means bee. The idea is that she's going to be one who's going to both sting and bring sweetness and refreshment like a bee does. As a prophet, she will both speak in a way and will speak for God in a way that will both sting but also bring refreshment. It's interesting in the text here, it says in Judges 4 that she was the wife of Lapidoth. There's two different possibilities here, either that she is literally the wife of a man named Lapidoth, which I thought my legal name of Huey was rough. Lapidoth feels a little bit more difficult, all right? Uh, Some commentators will say, though, that this is not necessarily her husband's name, that it can also be translated that she's a woman of torches, the idea being that she's a woman who will bring light as she delivers the word of God to the nation of Israel. This is Deborah, the latest judge that rises up in Judges chapter 4. Uh, This is a sense of who she is, and she's going to speak, and notice what she declares as to what God is going to do for his people in verses 6 and 7. She says this, now she sent and she summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. And I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his, many, and his many troops, and I will give him into your hand. The calling that Deborah gives to the nation of Israel is that God is going to raise up for them an army and they're going to defeat their enemies. That the oppression that they've been experiencing for the last 20 years is going to be no more as they cry out to God and God will deliver them based off their cry for deliverance. All they have to do is round up 10,000 men, go out to Mount Tabor, and he's going to, God will bring out the enemy's commander, and they will conquer the foreign enemy on that day. All they got to do is obey. Judges chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, give us a, a sense of the calling on the nation of Israel. There's a great clarity of call. What's going to end up happening in verse 8 and 9 is that we're going to be introduced to the commander of, the, uh, of Israel's army, and we're going to see a passivity to the call. Where there's great clarity and there's great confidence as Deborah speaks, we're going to see the leading man of our story emerge, and it's not a good look. Notice verses 8 and 9. Then Barak said to her, if you'll go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, then I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera, the commander of the uh, foreign enemy's uh, uh, military, into the hands of a woman. The nation of Israel cries out for deliverance. God raises up Deborah. Deborah says to the nation, God is going to deliver us from our oppressors. She pivots now. The story pivots over to the leader of Israel's army. And he says to her, if you will go with us, then I will go. But if you will not go, then I will not heed the call of God. There's great bravery. There's great confidence on Deborah's part. But to our leading man of the story, there's passivity and there's hesitancy from the least likely of candidates. This moment in time for me right now is an interesting one because my Dallas Cowboys are going to show up tomorrow night to Tampa Bay, and they're going to do something they haven't done in 30 years. Defeat a road team in the playoffs. Um, If you think it's difficult being an Aggie football fan, try being an Aggie football fan and a Dallas Cowboys football fan together, all right? Uh, literally the last time my beloved team won a road playoff game, I was the same age as my 13-year-old daughter right now. That's a lifetime has passed, all right? Three decades, all right? It's difficult being me, all right? 
But again, that's not why we're here. Okay. The reason why I bring that up is that I want to tell you a story from uh, a former Dallas Cowboys head coach, Jason Garrett. He tells a story a few years ago at a Princeton event where he had gone to school in which he, the first time he was on the field as a Dallas Cowboy, he tells a story that he'd gone in on a preseason game. It was a preseason game. He was a third string quarterback and he recognized that this game, this moment would probably have more to do with determining whether he would have a roster spot and be a part of Dallas Cowboys history than any other moment of history for him. He knew that game was critical, and so it's third quarter. Uh, he's a third-string backup quarterback, and he finally goes into the game, and he realizes this moment, this series, this game will determine more for him than any other part of uh, his next time as a Dallas Cowboys player. In fact, in the midst of the story at this point in time, those Dallas Cowboys heroes of old, Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith, Michael Irvin, are literally on the sideline. They're eating corn dogs and sunflower seeds, which is where the stars go in the preseason games, all right? They're as far away from the field as possible. They're as disengaged as possible. And as was every other significant player of the Dallas Cowboys, except for the all-pro starting guard, um, uh, Gogan, Kevin Gogan. And at this point in the third quarter, unlike most starting players, he's still having to play because of injuries. And so he's very upset that he's having to play in the third quarter, especially because if there's anyone who wants to be eating corn dogs and sunflower seeds, it's Kevin Gogan, the offensive lineman. So he's upset, he's in a bad mood, and they get into the huddle, and Jason Garrett, his first huddle, his first moment in live action with an actual Dallas Cowboys uniform, he's in the field, and he's in the huddle here. He plays the, the play that the coaches have called to the team, and then he looks at the offensive line, and he says, hey, guys, what snap count should we go on? We think in short count, we think in long count, what are we thinking? Kevin Gogan, not in a good mood, and says, hey, Red Bull, which was his nickname because he's a redheaded ginger playing quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, he says, hey, Red Bull. You're the freaking quarterback of the team. Can you just decide the snap count and let's go? He's going to get hit many times later on in that game because there's a bunch of spares that are guarding him, of guys that are just also trying to get a roster spot. But it was those comments at that moment in that game that hurt him more than any other hit the rest of the day in the game. Why? Because he's the quarterback. If there's anyone that should not be deferring, if there's anyone that should not be running a democracy at that point in time, it's him. But he's deferring and he's looking around going, hey, what should we do here, guys? He's the quarterback. He should have been in command. Barak is the leader of the military of Israel. He should be in command and he doesn't want to go unless mommy wants to go with him. Deborah. Literally. Deborah, if you will go, then I will go too. But if you're not in my little security blanket, then I, I'm not going. I don't care how confident it is that you've declared what God's going to do. I'm out if you're out. Her response is incredibly both stinging and sweet. She said, I'll go. I'm going to go with you. Nevertheless, the honor that you're about to, that shall not be yours for the journey you're about to take because the enemy is going to be delivered into the hands of a woman, not you. It's interesting as the story unfolds. We're going to kind of flash through it here in chapter 4, but you're going to see in the remaining part of chapter 4 exactly how Sisera is delivered into the hands of a woman. Notice verse 15, chapter 4. The Lord routed uh, Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and he fled away on foot. Verse 17, skip down a little bit. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber, the Canaanite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Haber, the Canaanite. And so you have the commander of the foreman armies who's getting routed and he flees and he just takes off. And he heads off to a neighboring area where he has peace with a treaty with another uh, group of people. But what's really interesting in chapter 4 is that he doesn't show up to the husband's tent. He shows up to the wife's tent. 
story continues on, verse 18. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her in the tent, and she covered him with a rug. He said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink, and then she covered him. He said to her, stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be that if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, is there anyone here that you shall say no? Essentially, uh, Sisera is asking for provision and protection from this wife who is also asking to lie on his behalf. This is not good hospitality. This is not a good request. Verse 21, but Jael, Haber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple and they went through into the ground for he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. (laughs) This is not made for TV, people, all right? This is rough. Deborah says that this man will be delivered to the hands of a woman, and this is the woman who gets delivered the hands into, right? It's interesting. Where is her husband? Uh, he's made an alliance with foreign kingdom, foreign powers. He's, not, he's absent in the story as well. Also, many commentators will suggest, as we kind of walk through the story, as Sisera shows up at her tent, uh, a foreign pagan military commander who probably has expectations of what he can get in situations with the opposite sex. I don't think his intentions were probably noble here, not only asking for protection and provision. Uh, and the assumption is, even as we get to chapter 5, that there's something else going on. Notice chapter 5, verse 27. Notice how the story unfolds. We're actually, pick it up at verse 26. She reached out her hand for the tent peg. In chapter 5, Deborah and Barak are going to sing a duet together because that's what we do in other cultures, not in this culture. Uh, but they sing a duet. They're singing of all the things that happened in chapter 5. And in terms of this scene, notice how it's described and sung about in verses 26 and 27. She reached out her hand for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. Then she struck Sistra. She smashed his head, and she shattered and pierced his temple. Verse 27. Notice a bit of the illusion and the connotations. Between her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay. Between her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell dead. Some of the assumption of commentators is that he shows up at her tent with somewhat of sinister uh, assumptions, obligations, and intent, and she returns the favor to him. Where she could have been a victim, all of a sudden he becomes the victim ultimately. Again, where is her husband? We don't know. Why does, he, why does he go to her tent and not the husband's tent, asking for hospitality? Again, not a good look for a pagan man. But in the midst of all of this, we see yet another woman who arises in bravery, who seems to honor and to know uh, the creator God, the God of Israel, and who responds in a holy war, taking and probably protecting herself. Deborah, jail. Women in the midst of crisis who seem to respond with great bravery. Haber. Sisera, Barak, men who seem to respond with great passivity. Over and over again, we see this pattern of men and women who are responding in different ways in the midst of crisis, in the midst of a critical moment. It's interesting to me as we kind of walk through the stories, it's not just the passivity of these two men and the bravery of these two women that are kind of put on on display for us, but as chapter 5 unfolds, it kind of pulls the curtain back and we see that the story is way more about just these two men and these two women. It's been about a whole group of people who respond and some who don't respond. 
It's interesting as we get in the song of chapter 5, as it begins to unfold and it begins to sing, notice the number of people who respond. Uh, chapter 5, pick it up in verse 13. The text says, Then survivors came down to the nobles. The people of the Lord came down to me as warriors. From Ephraim, those whose root is in Amalek came down. Following you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Machar, commanders came down. And from Zebulon, those who wield the staff of office. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. As was Issachar, so was Barak. And into the valley they rushed at his heels. Chapter 5, verses 13, 14, and the first half of 15 detail numerous groups and tribes who responded to Deborah's call because though we have two women with bravery and two men with passivity, there's a whole group of volunteers who emerged to the call and volunteered with Barak, who participated, volunteered, and got into the battle. What's really interesting to me, though, in verses 15, the last half of 15 and on, is that Deborah calls out puts on blast, puts them out on roll call, all those who don't show. Notice what she says in chapter 5, verses 15 and on. Among the divisions of Reuben, there was great resolves of heart. Why did you sit, though, among the sheepholes to hear the piping of flocks? Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. There are a whole host, thousands upon thousands, who responded to the call and participated and volunteered where there were whole tribes that were no-showed at critical moments. I love the way she describes this. She says that of that tribe, there was great resolves of heart. They had rallies, they had conferences, they had great convictions and resolutions, but they did absolutely nothing. This is all of us that had great New Year's resolutions about our diet and our health, and we've done a lot of research about gyms and workout routines, but we've done nothing. That's Reuben, okay? They rallied their swords, they, they had their chants, their fights, their mantras, but they actually didn't ever show once. Great resolves of heart, great searchings of heart, but no action. She goes on further and she says, um, Gilead remained across the Jordan. We don't know why, they just never came. It was too far away. It was probably inconvenient. Lastly, and why did Dan stay in ships? Two different possibilities here. She kind of uh, kind of shames Dan. She basically that either they were too busy with business to participate in what God had called them to do, or staying in ships could have actually been some kind of allusion to comfort uh, and luxury. That either they were too busy with business to participate in the things that God had for them, or they were too busy with their affluence and their comfort to be bothered with the call and the things of God. Lastly, the text says, Asher sat at the seashore and remained by its landings. And for whatever excuses they may have put forward, they just sat by the seashore, probably claiming that they were too busy. But in fact, they weren't doing anything at all. Reminds me of my kids who think that they can't, I don't have the time to do chores, but they can sure get that Netflix show in and that whole series that they want to binge, right? Too busy, but where are you when it matters? Thinking of passivity and hesitancy, I think it strikes us in so many different situations, and in so many situations, we can respond so differently. I spent the weekend watching seventh grade girls basketball. I had no idea it could be so physical. <laughs> I saw collisions of girls at full speed that if it were me, I don't know that I'd get back up. I'm going to be perfectly honest. Some thrive and rally to that moment, and some peel back and recoil. 
Some of you college students are looking to ask out someone this semester. You guys are looking to ask out a girl. Some of you have no problem doing it, pulling the trigger. Some of you get caught in mouth and can't think what to say and try to dial the girl's number four times before you finally make the call, right? Some of us are trying to make a decision about jobs or decisions or majors or the next step we're going to take in a situation or relationship and that we get into a paralysis of analysis. We can't move forward. Some of us, in the midst of what God may be calling us to or thinking about or challenging us to consider, for some of us it can be reasons of just don't want to risk something for what God might have. I was thinking through what are the different reasons for so many of our passivity? It can come in so many different situations that we find ourselves in. I was thinking what are some of the most common reasons why we respond in passivity when God calls or pushes us to consider something? Let me give you a few ideas and let you kind of think it through a little bit in terms of how you respond. For some of us, it can be circumstantial uncertainty. The question that dominates as we feel like God nudging on us or pushing on us is, what if? God, I know you might be calling me to consider this, but what about this? What about this? What would happen to this? What would happen to this relationship or this situation? We get stuck into what-if scenarios that we can't get ourselves out of, and we just get stuck. And we hesitate, and we get passive. For some of us, it's personal inadequacy. And the question that dominates us as we think about what God's calling us to or as we find ourselves in the midst of a crisis or tough situations, we think, who, me? Think about all the biblical characters from Genesis to Revelation that ask this question. God shows up in a burning bush to Moses and challenges him to be a part of what he is going to do in the, in the nation of Israel's life and history. And what, is his, what is his primary hesitation and his primary reason for passivity? I can't speak. I need someone to come alongside of me. God is gracious enough and provides that to him. But one of his major hesitations was about him. For Timothy, it was his age. Paul has to encourage him. Don't let your age hold you back. Don't be timid. For so many of us, we think about who we are. We think about our limitations. And that can be so much of the reason why we don't respond when we feel like God's calling us or pushing us into a hard conversation, a hard decision, or responding in obedience to what we feel like he's called us to. For some of us, it can be scheduling urgency, right? Uh, we feel like God's calling us to something, and we wrestle with, well, <laughs> we'll win. Like, can that be later, or does that have to be, like, right now? It's like, I had a few plans for right now, right? For some of us, the question that dominates in the midst of those moments is, is when can, can I push that conversation off? Can I push that decision off? For some of us, it's scheduling urgency that can be the real reason for our passivity. We just try to push the thing off. Lastly, for some of us, it can be material luxury. That we feel like God's calling us to something or God's pushing us to something, but we don't want to give up a level of affluence, a level of comfort, or, or something that we possess or that we own or that we couldn't go get. The question that dominates that moment for us or that internal dialogue is how much and at what cost. For so many of us, we find ourselves in situations where passivity and bravery are the options. And there's a whole host of reasons why that we often lean toward passivity. What is yours? What is it for you? What's the reason that it slows you down? What's the reason why you hesitate or you pull back and recoil at times when you feel like God's calling you, challenging you, and pushing you? What is it? For so many of us, it can be different reasons. 
But if you know your tendency, then you have a better chance to respond correctly with the next opportunity. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 ultimately is not just a, a story about passivity and bravery in the midst of the call, but it's also about an opportunity in the midst of a call. Judges chapter 4 and Judges chapter 5 are a fascinating story because they're bookend with two clear announcements of transitions. Notice in chapter 4, verse 1, and we read this already, but I want you to see it again. The sword begins in the midst of a transition, and that transition provided an opportunity. Remember in the text, it says, after Ehud died, there was a a void and a vacuum of leadership, and in that void, the nation made decisions of passivity that led to difficulty for the next 20 years. In the midst of Judges 4, in the midst of Judges 5, finally the leaders will respond. We're going to see in chapter 5, uh, as the story, as chapter 5 begins, and then as chapter 5 ends, I've given you the beginning and the end of chapter 5 here on the slide. Notice how it's bookended, and notice how we see the story wrap up. Then Deborah and Barak sang on that day, saying that the leaders led in Israel and that the people volunteered, bless the Lord. She erupts in chapter 5 in song, praising God for what ended up unfolding. Yes, there were some that responded in passivity, but by and large, the nation responded. Leaders led, people volunteered, the nation rallied, and they came around, and they walked with God in the midst of that moment. And notice the result, and notice how the legacy shifts by the end of chapter 5. Thus, let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the rising of the sun and its might. And the land was undisturbed for the next 40 years. Chapter 4 opens in a moment of transition in which there have been 20 years of oppression and difficulty. Chapter 5 ends after the leaders have led and the people have volunteered in bravery, and the result is 40 years of lasting peace, provision, and abundance. Our response in the midst of transitions can have a huge impact for a long time. Ultimately, right now, I think as we begin this semester, we are actually in the midst of a transition. I think there's a transition occurring in two different ways that I want to highlight for you this morning. The first is this. It's a new semester. It's a new year. It's a great opportunity to reset, take stock, think about where we've been and where you want to go. Hopefully, hopefully you've had some opportunity and some time to think back on last year and to begin to think about what's coming and what's ahead and what you want to be true of you this year. For some of us, that's just simple uh, resolutions and simple things about diet, exercise. Hopefully some of that's about spiritual goals as well. For Marcy and I, we've been thinking a little bit about what do we want to be true of us and how do we want to invest our time this semester as we head into a new year. And I think it's particularly pertinent for us as, as a campus here at Southwood, as I was thinking even this week afresh and this, this winter break afresh, because ultimately this fall, as we come up to this upcoming fall, it's going to be 15 years of our campus's existence. We opened this campus back in 2008. For Marcy and I, we were here back when it opened. I was a young, uh, un-gray-haired, uh, probably not hip, but I was a college pastor back in those days, all right? Um, we've been here since the beginning. We were here when this back wall was beige, and uh, it looked like we decorated this campus walked out of a Kirkland's, which I don't know if it still exists anymore, all right? Um, we were here for the first events like Easter extravaganza. Some of y'all never even know what that is. Uh, I think Jacob actually Smith was actually at the time our junior high guy and dressed up as a bunny, like a tall bunny. It was amazing. Kids were scared. It was that amazing. 
We were here for the first baptisms in the grass right outside that wall. Uh, we've been here through COVID. We've been here through so many of the transitions. And for Marcy and I, even this winter break, as we were thinking about it, our, our gaze and our heart really shifted this winter break. Not, no longer really looking back on what's been, but looking forward to what's to come. This upcoming fall will mark 15 years of our campus's existence. And for Marcy and I, this winter break, our heart and our prayer really began to shift to not what it has been and what we've been a part of, but what would it look like and how do we begin to reinvest in, the, in this campus for the next 15 years? For the nation of Israel, leaders led, people volunteered, and it set a trajectory that lasted for decades. For Marcy and I, who have been here since 2008 when we opened this campus, our heart and our vision has really shifted from what's been true of the last 15 to what's going to be true for the next 15 years. And how are we going to be a part of that? Not what we were a part of before, but how are we going to be a part of these next 15 What does it look like to invest in terms of who we are, what experiences we can steward, and how do we get involved? And so for us, we were thinking afresh of just how can we get involved, and where can we serve, and where can we lead, and how can we give of our time, our money, and our resources in fresh ways looking forward? This is a transition moment, and our moments and our responses in the midst of transition can leave legacies that last decades. So my question for you simply is going to be this this morning. It's this. One How do you respond in the midst of passivity? Because your tendency can determine, if you know it, how you're going to respond to the next opportunity that comes. My second question for you this morning is, how are you going to invest in this campus this spring? I want to give you a series of opportunities as you think about the opportunity of the call that is coming and that's going to be here. uh, How do we respond and what does God have for us? Uh, Ultimately, I'm going to give you a, a series of different opportunities based off of who you are. I love the way chapter 5 ends where it says the leaders led and the people volunteered. Uh, For me specifically, my job has changed. I I frankly am not as involved in the day-to-day here at Southwood, but I'm involved as a staff guy enough that I've been able to see the picture that the Southwood staff has in terms of Jacob and Julie and Ryan for the semester that's coming. And I will tell you, I'm probably more excited about this semester at Southwood that's coming than I have been about a semester in a long time. The vision that I think the team has for who this campus is and where this campus is headed, the vision that they have for the opportunities they're going to challenge us to be a part of that are coming this semester are broad, they're varied, and they're incredibly strategic. And I couldn't be more excited excited for where I think this semester is headed and the opportunity that we are going to have to be a part of it. And so what I want to do this morning, thinking about Judges 5, that the leaders led and the people volunteered, is I want to challenge you to consider how you're going to volunteer this semester. I'm going to preview a few things that are coming, but you're going to hear a lot more about some of these things as the semester unfolds and as the semester goes. A few things I'd say first is uh, the team here has really set up a series of opportunities to serve. If you're new or if you're intimidated, you're like, I don't really know how to jump into this. I don't really want to cannonball into the pool. I'd like to kind of put my toe in and kind of ease in. And so a few of those opportunities are going to be through this QR code that are on the screen. If you simply use that QR code, it'll take you to a volunteer sign-up form that'll list some of these opportunities. But to that end, I will just say Jacob and Trey Jordan have done an amazing job thinking through how can you serve even on a Sunday morning with limited time in really meaningful and strategic ways. From worship to production to our greeter team, our next steps teams, greeters and whatnot. Uh, For you college students, whether that's children's or youth, there are so many opportunities to begin to serve here at this campus that are easy first steps. 
So, so many of you who think, well, who, me? What do I have to share? What do I have to give? Those opportunities are incredibly great, incredibly easy to step into. For some of you uh, college students, let me particularly push you guys to consider serving in children, serving in youth. Great opportunity to serve the next generation of youth that are coming up, that are getting to learn from someone other than mom and dad what it looks like to walk with Jesus and to love Jesus. For you young families, I realized a few years ago as I was referring to myself as a young family, and it was Julie White and her daughter, who at the time was a senior in high school, who came to me and goes, you're not a young family anymore. You know that, right? I had like kids in elementary school. I was like, what are you talking about? They're like, you're not a young family. I was like, okay. Um, but for you guys that have kids at home still that maybe even aren't in school, I would say one of the easiest and greatest opportunities to serve is in our college ministry as a table host on Sunday mornings. They run a service in there at 11 o'clock that has worship and a message. And I would just say as a young family in that stage of life, it was a great opportunity to serve at 11 o'clock to get to invest in the lives of college students in an easy way that's set up for you and often leads to free babysitting because they end up loving your kids and want to be a part of your family, all right? For some of you who are older families, which I now recognize I am, okay? Uh, it's weird to recognize that we are a semester away in our home from not having a kid in elementary school ever again. That's weird. Um, I laugh thinking about so many of Jacob's illustrations uh, in which there's about blowout diapers and spills at the table and bedtime rituals. I don't even remember what that's like anymore, okay? My kids stay up after me. Uh, my kids laugh at me when we spill. And my kids laugh at us when we can't find our stuff, okay? Like, it, it just kind of has entirely flipped at this point in time. I can't imagine what it's going to be like later, okay? When I lose my mind, it's fine. But for us young fam or older families, I would just say to y'all and as many of our peers, one of your greatest contributions in the life of our campus now is to help mentor, shepherd, and pour into our young families, you remember what those days were like. You were probably glad you're not in those days anymore. <laughs> um, but you remember what it's like. And to shepherd and to pour into the marriages and the upbringing of young kids because you've been there and you know what it's like and you have a perspective because you've gone ahead is going to be one of your greatest contributions in the life of this campus. Yes, of the college students, but to our young families because there's no one that can pour into them like you can because you've been there. Our team is going to have a lot of opportunities for you as the semester unfolds, from hosting dinner parties to jumping into a marriage and parenting elective later on in the spring. So many more things that we're going to unfold for you as the semester comes. But I simply want to end, and I simply want to challenge you with this. We find ourselves in the midst of a transition of a new semester. We find ourselves in the midst of a transition that the next 15 years of this campus are coming, and our decisions this semester can help set the, set the stage and set the course of what's ahead. How do you want to be a part of that? How do you want to serve and join in as the leaders lead and as the people volunteer? Deborah and Barrick sing a song over the nation, and my hope and my prayer is that that song could be sung over this campus as we all engage, because there's something unique and there's something special about serving in the local church. As the people of God across generations gather to worship him and to know him and to be made like him, us to serve and to lean into one another so that we can be all that God's intended us to be. That's our hope and that's our heart for you is that this semester as it unfolds that you'll make the strategic decisions about how you invest your time to be a part of what's happening here to invest in someone younger. The worship team is going to come up for us and they're going to lead us as we kind of close out this morning. But let me pray for us as we wrap up this morning. 
Lord God, we come before you and we just acknowledge in the midst of our own lives, whether it's difficult conversations, whether it's difficult relationships, whether it's difficult decisions, or even more significantly, whether it's the call of God in our life as you lead, as you convict, as you challenge. Lord, it's easy for us to respond so often with passivity, thinking about our inadequacy, thinking about the things that we feel are more important, thinking about the things that we feel are are inconvenient about what you would call us to do and be a part of. Lord, I pray for our campus. I pray for each of us, Lord, that as, uh, as our elders and as our staff lead us, Lord, I thank you for the vision that you've given them. I thank you for the things that are in store, the things that are coming this semester, and I pray for us as a campus and a congregation, Lord, that we would have hearts that are ready, hearts that are responsive to engage and to serve and to volunteer cheerfully, generously with all that we have. Lord, our hope and our heart is to be a part of something that you will do, that only you will do, that will impact the next 10, 20, 30 years. Lord, for all of us, we find ourselves at different stages of maturity, different stages of life, Lord, and I pray that you allow us to have an honesty and a boldness to see and to hear how we can contribute and what we can be a part of. For there's a spot for each of us, and there's a role for each of us, and an opportunity for each of us. And Lord, may we lean into one another, and may we serve with conviction and vision. Whether we've been here for three months, or we've been here for almost 15 years. Lord, give us a vision for what you have for us and how we can engage and how we can be a part of what you are doing among us for your glory and for your purposes.